rural, poor, indigenous people of Peru have elected one of their own as president. It's pretty exciting. I'm Bert Cohen, and we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profits, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. I speak tonight for the dig- dignity of man. You know where Peru is and that it is the home of the amazing tourist site Machu Picchu and that the Andes mountain chain runs through it. You may even know that the indigenous people make up the majority of Peruvians. But aside from that, North Americans in general know very little about the country. It splashed briefly in the world news in 1996 when militants seized the residence of the Japanese ambassador in Lima during a party taking hostage some 400 diplomats, government officials, and other dignitaries. The four-month standoff was in protest of prison conditions in Peru. The right-wing neoliberal Alberto Fujimori was president from 1990 to 2000. Fujimori ended his presidency by fleeing Peru for Japan amid major scandals involving corruption and human rights abuses. That was then. Now, Fujimori's daughter, the far-right-wing Keiko Fujimori, was running for president, but in the June 6th election, she was defeated by a hair's breadth by left-leaning, working-class Pedro Castillo. And it's a big deal, even though mainstream American media barely mentioned it. Well, I'm pleased to have with us today Medea Benjamin, who just returned from Peru as an election observer with Progressive International. Medea Benjamin is co-founder of the peace group Code Pink and author of books on Middle East and Latin America. She's been a vocal participant in many of what I call truly righteous actions. She's a highly she's highly skilled at causing what the late Congressman John Lewis called good trouble. It is an honor to have with us Medea Benjamin. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks so much, Bert, for having me on. But I should give an immediate update, I think, on your wonderful introduction, which is that the election hasn't been officially called yet. And even though it's uh, over a week since it happened, the opposition is trying to throw everything that it can at the uh, results to get them annulled. And as we speak, there is still a lot of maneuvering going around. And I hate to say it, but uh, this election is still dangerously hanging by a thread and hopefully Castillo will become president, but there may also be a coup or some other terrible maneuver before he is allowed to uh, take the presidency and respect the will of the Peruvian people. Whoa. Why does that sound familiar? My goodness. And they, they, the powers that be are significant powers that be there. I, 
I don't know, but I'm guessing they're probably at times less subtle given the uh, uh, tradition of uh, Fujimori uh, than in many other countries. So that it's a dangerous situation, it sounds like. How co- well, also, let's remember that we had uh, something happening similarly with, with Trump in the election. And it's interesting because this whole idea of throwing lawyers to announce fraud and uh, find discrepancies here and there and then allege that the whole election was fraudulent uh, is something out of Trump's playbook. And although these kinds of things have happened in countries all over the world uh, many times, uh, it's now something that is seen as more, quote, legitimate because Mm. it happened right here in the U.S. So I just want to say that before we act like we're our, our system is somehow a superior to yeah. the one in Peru. <laughs> uh, I wonder if he even copied some of Trump's stuff. No doubt. I mean, if, if Trump even knew who Fujimori was, which I seriously doubt, that, but they, I mean, the, the Keiko Fujimori is of the uh, similar uh, background, I imagine. I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's wealthy people who uh, want to keep power, feel like they have a right to power, and to heck with democracy. Uh, that happened here, and it's happening there. Well, let us, I, I will admit, acknowledge my uh, support for uh, Pedro Castillo. He sound, sounds like a very interesting and much-needed uh, breath of fresh air in, in Peru. And I, I actually, I was in Peru in 1977, a long time ago, touring with a bunch of friends who'd all worked together on a congressional campaign that one, I might add, we saw a fair amount of the country, and I've had an affinity to the people of Peru ever since. In the intervening time, Peru was wracked by the Maoist shining path, Sendero Luminoso, and the right-wing militarist dictator, Alberto Fujimori. <sighs> so bring us to the amazing cliffhanger election, which is still in question. Tell us about the two candidates and the interests they each represented. Let's start with the seemingly newly elected president, Pedro Castillo. Tell us about him. Yeah, Bert, these candidates couldn't be more different. Is somebody that Peru has never seen before, a president that is so rooted in the countryside. Uh, He is a farmer. He grows sweet potatoes. There are pictures of him plowing the fields with his oxen. Uh, he is a teacher. He's been a teacher at the same rural school that he actually attended himself uh, for about 24 years. Uh, he became somewhat known during a teacher's strike that he led a few years ago and asking for uh, better pay for teachers, but asking for more of the budget to be put into education. And uh, then he is also what's called a rondero. Uh, it's a member of a watch group that is sort of a community uh, guardian group trying to keep communities uh, free of uh, crime, delinquency, but also during the time of the Shining Path, uh, they fought against the Shining Path. Um, so he's a number of those things, but Uh, Really what he is, is somebody very humble. Mm. Uh, It was a tremendous shock to uh, Peruvians that he came out first in the first round of elections because 
he was a relative unknown. Uh, And then because he came out number one in the first election that had 18 candidates, he and uh, Fujimori then uh, were the two in the runoff. Now, in terms of what he wants to do, Mm. he wants to see the uh, economy transformed from one that favors multinationals and large corporations uh, to one that favors uh, the rural people who have been so discarded uh, by most of Peru's governments. And that's why in this vote, you see that the countryside overwhelmingly voted for him, whereas it was in the cities, in in Lima particularly, uh, that voted overwhelmingly for Keiko Fujimori. And so he has tremendous support in the countryside. Uh, He wants to see another round of land reform. Mm. And he also wants to see a a rewriting of the deals that Peru has with the companies like the mining, the copper, the gold companies, uh, where so much of the wealth is exported out of the country. And it's uh, uh, pathetic that it's precisely in those areas that have these tremendous mineral wealth that you find the poorest people in Peru. Mm. So his call for renegotiating the contracts as well as the free trade agreements that have been signed uh, with other countries. And then he has a call that's quite controversial, which is to rewrite the constitution. Right. And so that's, um, a big issue because the Constitution really is written as a document to favor the multinationals, to decrease the role of the state, um, to privatize essential goods and services. And so that is a big part of his campaign has been uh, how can we get a referendum to be able to rewrite the Constitution. Wow, that's <laughs> he has a lot on his plate. My goodness. And uh, that that's so interesting coming from the countryside and I, I don't know what the percentages is you know are but uh, certainly in North America you know there are certain voting blocks within urban areas and the rest of the country feels like it's it's left out and they have been left out a lot and uh, that <laughs> that uh, uh, demographic felt left out and they felt like uh, there was an elitist candidate in 2016 in the name of Hillary Clinton and they fell for the populist uh, lies basically of of Donald Trump but there is a big big difference between the two and it's a a very large geographic country. Well uh, let me just also say that there that unlike the U.S., where the rural areas tend to be the conservatives, right. where you find more of the red states, right. uh, in Peru as well as in some of the other places in Latin America, it's the opposite. That in the countryside, you find people uh, more uh, determined to make more radical changes in favor of the poor. Yeah. And it's in the cities where you see people who want to maintain the status quo. Right. Quite different. And I can't help but be reminded of uh, uh, another uh, heroic figure, Bolivia's Evo Morales, who uh, I love his outfits. He's uh, uh, indigenous, and on his Western suits, he has the bright, bright colors, like rainbow colors uh, sewn in patches. And uh, he, despite massive campaigns by moneyed 
non-Bolivian natural gas powers, uh, the party of Bolivia's Evo Morales has been returned to power, right? It, they have a long border with Peru, I believe. I, I've heard... Well, yes, and Evo Morales is somebody who's been working with and immediately congratulated Pedro Castillo yeah. on his campaign. Uh, people talk about him being uh, very close to Evo Morales, Wonderful. the way he would like to see changes in Peru. And I also want to say that uh, one of the very cool things about Pedro Castillo was uh, that since he is a, from the countryside, he uh, campaigned wearing his big uh, wide-brimmed uh, straw hat, and he also had a pencil as yes. his um, uh, standard his uh, identification. And so all over the country, as people were campaigning for him, you saw all different kinds of creative uh, uses of the pencil symbol, giant pencils, everybody holding pencils, I mean, all kinds of uh, uses. And his theme uh, slogan was, no more poor people in a rich country. Yes. And then he would say, take the word of the teacher. Ah. So it was a, a very positive message that he had and really resonated with lots and lots of people. And uh, let me also just yes. say that there is a teacher in every village in uh, the country. Now, many of these teachers have been abandoned by the state and that they get minimal pay. Uh, in his village where he grew up, it was the community that had to build the school themselves because the state didn't do it. But he has this connection through being a teacher with uh, this uh, not only union of teachers, but mm -hmm. also just um, the fact that he cares so much about education and this is something that uh, has helped to give him cohesion with all of these villages around the country. And as I recall from uh, old studies, that throughout uh, Latin America, there's uh, an importance on, on being literate, being able to read, and that certain powers are not exactly in favor of the rural people, the indigenous people being able to read, because if you can read, ah, you have a little bit of power. I mean, that was the case in uh, in the slave system here in these uh, currently United States, that uh, they didn't, you know, the powers didn't want people to be able to read. So here we are, a guy with a big pencil. I loved, I, you know, doing a little research, there was this uh, inflatable pencil as a prop on the campaign trail. So the pencil is, that's a good symbol that uh, people can get and uh, it doesn't take a lot of uh, words to describe it. That's really important in politics, symbolism. Absolutely. And the fact that his parents were illiterate yes. uh, oh, is God. something that he says, you know, why should this be happening in Peru uh, where people continue to be illiterate and the need to put more of the country's resources into education and you know it's not a poor country because it has so many mineral resources um, it is really uh, a wealthy country so um, this issue of what is the uh, where should the government put its resources of course the same kind of issues uh, that we face in this country mm. uh, but putting more resources into education is extremely important because it was during the last couple of decades that the educational system has been drained uh, and s privatized to a large extent. 
And in this country as well, the uh, Republicans have done very, very well. It's served them well to defund public education for the last, oh, 50 years or so. They've got what they wanted. Oh, my goodness. For, that, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about an exciting development in Peru, uh, the maybe huh, seemingly uh, victorious election of, uh, of Pedro Castillo, a left-leaning uh, countryside uh, rural uh, uh, person and against the uh, powers that be. And let's look at, you know, the, the slogan, uh, No más pobre en pez rico. I probably pronounced that terribly. No more poor people in a rich country. Tell us about these, these riches, the uh, which particular, I mean, and mineral resources, they're the big deal now as we move forward into the 2020s more. I mean, Africa, China's going for them. Uh, in, in computers, people need more like lithium and things like that. Uh, tell us uh, about some of the, uh, where, the where the wealth is in, in this uh, well, country. Go ahead. Well, let's weave this into who is the opponent of Keiko Fujimori because mm -hmm. she does represent the wealthy sectors of Peru, uh, the people who are part of the multinational corporations, the large businesses, uh, the elites, the upper middle class. Uh, but she's also reached into the uh, some of the non-elites by her campaign that focused so much on fear, saying uh -huh. that if Pedro Fujimori came in, I mean, if, if uh, Castillo came in, he would take away people's homes, he would take away their businesses, um, he would turn Peru into a Venezuela. Uh, and so she really had a campaign uh, of, of saying not so much what she would do, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, making people afraid of what her opponent would do. It's important to say that she is a woman who represents her father, who was a, the president of uh, Peru, uh, during the time that Shining Path was uh, wreaking havoc, and he responded with tremendous abuses, uh, massacres of his own, and uh, corruption. And so he is in prison right now mm. for both those human rights abuses and corruption. And she has been uh, accused of corruption as well. In fact, um, she spent 16 months in prison and came out of prison for this election campaign. And it was funny, Bert, because I said to somebody, you know, how ironic that she comes out of prison to campaign for president. Um, and he said, yeah, and how ironic is it going to be when she loses the campaign and goes back in prison? Yeah. Because, you know, that's one of the reasons that she is fighting tooth and nail uh, to try to overturn the results because she knows as president, she gets immunity. And if she is not president, she will be going back to prison. Gosh, who does that remind me of? Somebody with an orange color who used to be. Well, that's right. <laughs> and and the, uh, uh, the Fujimori uh, campaign and the people that she has working with her are people who not only want to keep the inequities of the current system in Peru, uh, but really want to keep the institutionalized corruption uh, that has plagued this nation. And when you look at Pedro Castillo, somebody who is 
so humble, uh, doesn't want to take anything more than the salary of a teacher, mm. wants to cut in half the salaries of the members of Congress, and you compare it to Keiko Fujimori and who she surrounds herself with, um, it is night and day. And, um, you know, it would it's just so important that she not be allowed to go against uh, a democratic election, election that was certified as free and fair wow. by all of the observer groups who were there uh, and overturn it because it would be uh, definitely on behalf of the elites that she represents. And about how close was that election in terms of either percentages or actual votes? I have no idea. Well, the uh, final, final votes are still um, up for grab. 99.8% of the votes have been counted, and Pedro Castillo is ahead by, I think now it's about 60,000 votes. So uh, it's by a hair, mm. but it still is a victory. Um, so it has been a very close election, as I said, with all the fear-mongering uh, yeah. that was done. And, and I think it's important Bert, for people to understand uh, the odds that were against Pedro Castillo because the media in Peru is totally in the hands of the right wing. Uh, and some of them did not like Keiko Fujimori. It wouldn't, they wouldn't ha she wouldn't have been their uh, number one choice. But when it came down to her versus Castillo, they went for her. And so you couldn't... Um, help if you were switching around the channels of Peruvian TV or looking at the headlines in the newsstand, uh, you would see these wild accusations against Castillo or anybody in his party. Uh, and uh, it was hard to uh, recognize mm. how people could see beyond that and not be fooled by that kind of smear campaign. And of course, many people were were fooled by it and mm -hmm. held their noses and voted for a corrupt politician. Um, but it, it really is important to see how in so many countries in Latin America, uh, the consolidation of the press in the hands of the right makes it very hard to have really free and fair elections. And I'm guessing that uh, Internet access is not as... Uh, as full and deep as it is here in, in the U.S. and in other countries. So the media, I mean, it used to be the case in America that the media was owned by, you know, a few interests uh, and uh, that it mattered quite a bit what the mainstream media had to say. And I, I can just uh, imagine. And uh, you, you, so some of the, they, they said that Castillo would, would make Peru into another Venezuela, what other, I mean, and fear is so powerful. Trump used it all the time. And, and, you know, fear is one of the most powerful weapons there is in politics. And a certain uh, uh, German dictator knew about that in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, it, it helped him uh, cruise to power. So what, what else did they say about Castillo that, that may have connected and scared people? Well, they said that he was connected to the terrorist group Shining Path. Oh, my. And they did that through... Uh, this connection that, you know, somebody, one of the uh, main people in his party, and I, I should say that his party is something new uh -huh. uh, because the party existed, but he just joined it to run for president. Uh, they reached out to him and asked him 
to be their candidate on the party ticket. And it's a party that is a left uh, leftist party and that they accused uh, of having some connections to Sendero Luminoso uh, when the connection was really to the non-military faction of Sendero Luminoso. But Pedro Castillo himself um, is part of these community watch groups that actually fought Sendero Luminoso. Mm. So they made this connection saying that anybody who was uh, connected to progressive change was a Marxist-Leninist, was a terrorist, and was a communist, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was kind of a a closed loop in there. So he was accused of terrorism. Uh, He was accused of wanting to nationalize the resources. And he said that he was not um, calling for nationalization. What he was calling for is a better percentage of the profits to stay in the country. And he was also calling for uh, more support for local businesses uh, to be able to compete with the uh, foreign multinationals. So, you know, those are the kinds of things. And um, I, I, as you said, fear is such a powerful uh, weapon yeah. that I even talked to people in Lima who were very working class people including some of our taxi drivers, and they were afraid, deathly afraid, of uh, Pedro Castillo. There is still a a, um, sense of trauma among a lot of the uh, Peruvian people from the days of uh, the 1990s until 2002, um, when, when Sendero Luminoso was active. And um, so it's easy to convince people uh, that they could well be going back to those terrible days when tens of thousands of people were killed. Tens of thousands of people were killed. Yeah, it really was uh, a, a terror. It was a reign of terror. And that uh, so uh, Keiko Fujimori's father uh, clamped down on him really hard. And I suppose... It, it may have uh, given uh, uh, Alberto Fujimori uh, an excuse to uh, rain down his own terror. Tell us, please, about the horrors of uh, Alberto Fujimori, Keijo Keiko's father, uh, what, what he inflicted on uh, the people of Peru, which raises the question of Keiko's political appeal. Go ahead, please. Well, yes, uh, um, Keiko was herself uh, the first lady in during the time that her father was in power. So uh, she has a direct connection during those days. And one of the horrific things during that time was that over 300,000 people uh, were sterilized, uh, forcibly sterilized, and uh, most of them women. And they uh, continue to be uh, speaking out for justice. And this is something that Pedro Castillo has brought up during his campaign. Uh, There's also the uh, issue of the massacres that took place under her father uh, when so many civilians were killed. There was a massacre uh, at a uh, near a university uh, that killed students. Um, These people are part of the opposition that have been supporting Pedro Castillo because they too 
are asking for accountability. Mm. And then there was just the defunding of the state and the economic turmoil that was created during Fujimori's days of uh, austerity. Mm. Uh, And that is what the country has been left with uh, for the last few decades, this tremendous inequality that came from uh, Fujimori's shock doctrine. Shock doctrine, austerity, (laughs) those things never work. Uh, And I wonder how... You know, as as we said, the the slogan of uh, Castillo was "No more poor people in a rich country." What tell us, please, about the wealth divide and how is it manifested in urban versus rural areas? Well, just from my own recent stay in Peru, it was so obvious uh, when we would go through the rich neighborhoods like Miraflores, and you see the very opulent houses. Uh, it looks like the wealthy areas of Miami. And certainly the fancy cars and the guards. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you go out into the suburbs and you see people living on top of each other uh, without any kind of decent infrastructure. And then you go further into the countryside and you see people still living without electricity, without uh, running water. Uh, and then you go even further into the Amazon uh, and you see people who have been totally abandoned by the state. So the further you get away from Lima, uh, the more you understand uh, why there is this tremendous class divide that was manifested so overtly uh, in the election. Yeah, and I'll never forget, as I said, I was there in 1977, when we came into Peru on the drive to downtown Lima, we saw masses of what looked to, to this North American as ramshackle huts just barely clinging to the side of these steep cliffs, one on top of the other. And and you write that, it's curious to me, Peru's economy has grown impressively over the past 20 years. What? Tell us about the reality behind those words and the recent trajectory in Peru's level of poverty. Yes, Peru was uh, lauded by a lot of the international financial institutions uh, for its savings, for paying its debt, uh, for the growth rate. Uh, But of course, uh, behind that was masked this reality of who benefited. And then it was really uh, opened up in a very brutal way by COVID because Peru has the unenviable um, uh, statistic that it is the number one country per capita in terms of COVID deaths. And you saw how the countryside, the lack of hospitals, the lack of equipment in the clinics, all of that showed that they were unable uh, to attend to people who got COVID And um, yet in the city, if you had money, you could pay for a bed in the ICU units. Mm. You could pay for oxygen. Uh, And then we have uh, the phenomena that is happening every single day of wealthier people flying to Miami or New York to get their vaccines, whereas the vast majority of Peruvians don't have access to the vaccine. So the uh, COVID outbreak 
uh, is not only a health crisis, it exposed the structural yeah. crisis and exposed also how many people live in such precarious situations where they say 70% of the workforce is an informal workforce, meaning they don't have a you know place of work that they go to every day where there's some kind of uh, salary, uh, but it's a day-to-day kind of existence. So yes, the, the inequalities that were baked into the system became so evident and so cruel uh, when Peru got hard hit by COVID. And it is hard hit. As, as you write, Peru now has the shameful distinction of leading the entire world in per capita COVID-19 deaths. Absolutely amazing. And that says so much about uh, poor people in a rich country. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the peace group Code Pink, uh, who just returned from Peru. We're talking about uh, maybe victory <laughs> of a but uh, an impressive guy, a teacher from the countryside, uh, from the working class, or even peasant class. I, I don't. I mean, I, I know the term peasant is something that uh, people here in the United States uh, have certain reactions to, but I think it's. I mean, the indigenous people that they're, they're they are the majority of the people of Peru, are they not? And and uh, some of the, uh, as as has been written, the uh, the economic model has been successful as far as the you know the World Bank and the IMF, you know they pay back their loans. Well, isn't that swell? So you put it on the backs of the poor people, but the conservative bent of Peru's Lima-centered national pro- uh, national project has been haunted by prospects of this. Tempest in the Andes. I wonder, that seems like that really scared the the rich and powerful. What is this tempest that the wealthy and powerful fear? Well, they fear that the majority of Peruvians who have been disregarded by the state and oppressed in their living situations will rise up. Pedro Castillo doesn't call himself an indigenous person because he doesn't speak indigenous language, Mm -hmm. but he would be considered by people outside of Peru uh, as indigenous. And certainly he is a man of the land and has a great affinity to the land. And there have been land reforms previously in Peru, uh, but those have been eaten away at by the uh, austerity and privatization program. So there's a need for another round of land reforms. And yes, it's um, the, the tempest of the Andes is not only something affecting Peru, but yeah. we see it happening all over now Latin America. You know, there was a, a wave of progressive governments that had come into power uh, during the uh, what was called the pink tide yes. when you saw Lula in Brazil and you saw the progressive governments in Argentina, Bolivia, Ecuador. Um, now you're seeing another tide, uh, even though the left lost in the case of Ecuador, it came very close. And in Bolivia, as we said, uh, they managed to overturn a right-wing coup and put a progressive back in power. Um, there are some amazing uprisings happening in Chile where they actually are rewriting the Constitution like uh, Pedro Castillo would like to do in mm-hmm. Peru. Uh, Argentina is progressive. 
There are um, new elections coming up in uh, Brazil, Colombia, oh. Honduras, and there's a real prospect for an alliance, a strong alliance of progressive governments that would be uh, focused on regional integration, not want to be beholden to the U.S. And there's one other issue that we haven't mentioned, Bert, What's that? and that is uh, that China is the number one trading partner for oh. countries in Latin America. Oh my. And so while the U.S. wants to maintain its hegemony and keep the Monroe Doctrine alive that the U.S. <laughs> can determine what happens in its, quote, backyard, right. uh, the reality has changed. And there are more players now, uh, including China, and that gives greater flexibility to countries that want to maintain a more independent foreign policy and don't want to be beholden to the U.S. as the imperial power. Wow, that's that's interesting. I am. I mean, it's pretty well known that China is all over Africa, and they're doing a heck of a job at uh, you know developing the areas and and the old uh, what is it belt and road project and and that's bring i mean people support that because it's helping them uh so the the extractive industries and and chile i know has uh, large copper mines and that's a big deal what what are the ex- things that are extracted that are so important from uh from peru well copper and gold are the oh, uh, yeah. extremely important ones and uh, some of these mines are in the hands of Chinese, so it's not like the Chinese mm. are uh, just, you know, good guys. There's a huge port that they are building uh, that uh, Peruvians want, but it also is creating environmental uh, issues. Uh, there are mines, a lot of, the, um, a number of the mines are in the hands of Canadian companies that have played a very negative role in mining uh, throughout many countries of Latin America. Mm. And a lot of these mining companies have local partners among the Peruvian elites. But mining is a big issue. And Pedro Castillo has met with the miners, has talked a lot about that he is not against mining because mm-hmm. that is a big issue. You know, there are a number of environmental groups, and this was an issue for Abel Morales in Bolivia. Uh, and it was an issue in the uh, in other elections that there are indigenous and environmental groups that don't think some of these progressive leaders go far enough right. uh, in protecting the environment. And yet, if it's the basis of your economy or an important part of your economy, it's very hard to uh, to advocate for turning that off. So he has said he is not against mining, but he wants mining to be done in a way where the miners themselves are protected and uh, benefit, where the environment is protected, and where the uh, community and then the country at large uh, is benefited. So he talks about 70% of the profits staying at home uh, versus the way that it is now where 70% of the profits are going overseas. Oh, my goodness. What a concept of... You know, having people who are most affected by economic decisions actually able to participate in that. And I, no doubt the other side, the Keiko Fujimori side, uh, tried to uh, raise a lot of fears of, of uh, you know, painting a picture. But 
I mean, he's not a communist. Pedro Castillo is not a communist. He's he's not hardcore left. He, as you say, he won't nationalize the industries, which I might think is a good idea. But hey, he's right of me, I guess. Uh, I read that one of Castillo's distinctive qualities is that he has an accomplished team of policy experts. He's not like other left figures that we've read about through history. He's not doctrinaire. What does that portend about a Castillo government, should he actually get to be the president? Well, I mentioned that it was a complete surprise, and I would think to Pedro Castillo and uh, his party himself, that he came off number one in the first round and made it to the second round. And he had a number of interviews he did then where he made mistakes, where he didn't well articulate his vision. Uh, his economic proposals, and so he was strongly criticized for that and started to quickly bring in more advisors, and uh, now he does have a team of advisors, including people who are close to uh, the preferred leftist candidate for a lot of people, Veronica Mendoza. Uh, She ran for president as well, did not do well in the runoff, uh, but through her support to Pedro Castillo. And this is important not only because she has a, a, a very expert team of economic advisors, but it's also important for social issues because some in the left has criticized Castillo as being good on economic issues, but bad on social issues against gay marriage, against abortion, uh, part of the patriarchy. And indeed, he has... Uh, said and had positions that don't bode well for women's equality. And yet the best politician in this has been Veronica Mendoza, and she is now a key part of his uh, transition campaign, and hopefully uh, she and her team would have uh, high positions in his government. It also happened during the time that we were there uh, that he met with people from the LGBTQ community, and he came out saying that he was against discrimination against anybody. Uh, he is conservative in the um, when it comes to abortion. He is a practicing Catholic. His wife is evangelical. Some of the more hardcore leftists joked with us that when they would have meetings with him, uh, that he would start off the meetings with a prayer. Uh, which is not the way most leftists in Latin America uh, would start their meetings. But they understand that this is also part of his appeal to such a large sector of the Peruvian country, which is a conservative country, uh, especially on these social issues, uh, including in the rural areas, which is his base. So he's going to have to be uh, moved along on a number of these issues. But I think he is a non-dogmatic person and uh, it's possible to move him when he gets a chance to learn the realities uh, for people who are the brunt of discrimination along sexual and gender issues. And of course, we in the U.S. have our own values. We on the left here, but we can't be uh, cultural imperialists either. You know, they—it's—it's it's a Catholic country that matters a lot. Most of Latin America is, and you know, that's—it's <laughs> about. I think largely economic issues and and being able to participate in self-government. And, uh, you know, again, our values can't be imposed on them. So the the wealthy people, uh, is there a long ruling 
identifiable elite, which uh, Keiko Fujimori was affiliated with? Do, is it known who these, you know, the, these powerful interests are, or is it sort of uh, amorphous? Oh, yes, it's known who the powerful interests are that control the media, uh, who the powerful interests are that have their people in the Congress. And it's going to be very tough in the Congress because uh, Pedro Castillo's uh, supporters have a minority in Congress. The majority is in the hands of uh, more conservative groups that do represent these elites. And they are going to do everything they can to, one, try to stop him from becoming president. Right. And two, if he becomes president, to get rid of him and make sure he doesn't fulfill his term of five years. Ah. I was talking to a very good analyst of Peru who's written books about the elite, and he really loves Pedro Castillo and wants to see him in power. And I said, what do you think are the chances that he will uh, be able to fulfill even the first year of his term, and this guy said to me, oh, about 20%. Mm. Uh, so there is a, mm. a lot of um, power in these local elites. And uh, we've been trying to get U.S. Congress people, and we have gotten letters and uh, tweets from them saying, respect the will of the people, uh, but we're going to need a lot more solidarity from the U.S. to try to make sure that these elites don't continue to uh, have uh, the ability to um, run roughshod over free and fair elections. Boy, so much of that sounds familiar. And we used to uh, think, yeah, we got free and fair elections. And, you know, I find it fascinating that in terms of electoral legitimacy, Trump did it, Netanyahu's doing it, and it appears that what we think is the losing, losing candidate in Peru, Fujimori, also insists there was widespread voter fraud. The plague, that plague remains with us in the U.S., and the, the fantasy that caused the rage is still there in the state of Israel. It's still there in uh, the United States. I wonder how, I mean, even the allegation of fraud uh, will affect the implementation should he become uh, president of, of his uh, Castillo's agenda. Well, that's such an important issue to talk about, Bert, because um, I think the number one goal of the Fujimori crowd now is to stop Castillo from coming to power. But then they also want to make sure if he does come to power that he can't succeed. And calling these elections fraudulent is part of that, uh, sowing not only fear but doubt among uh, so many people in the country calling out their supporters out onto the streets, which they've been doing, and they don't have the same kind of mobilizing power as the left does, uh, but they have demonstrations in Peru, and that, I mean in Lima, the capital, and that's where their mm -hmm. media is, and the media cover these as if they were some really uh, big uh, demonstrations uh, representing the will of the majority of the people, whereas Pedro Castillo's people are coming out, uh, a lot of them in the countryside uh, that doesn't get covered by the media, yeah. uh, but there are going to be big mobilizations on Saturday of Castillo supporters uh, to show that there will be big trouble if um, the, 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 the Fujimori people try to steal this election. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Big trouble. That's kind of a scary thing. And uh, 
politics is always, you know, a, a basis of violence in politics. I hate to say, but but there seems to be. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're trying to. I, I, the democracy uh, is hanging by a thread all over the world, and we'll see if it can happen in in Peru. And and you write that uh, Castillo's victory uh, will represent. If he does become president, just even a victory itself will represent a huge blow to U.S. interests in the region and an important step toward reactivating Latin American integration. That's a very uh, interesting uh, uh, perspective out there. What factors have prevented these combination left indigenous labor movements until now from cohering into a a credible threat to the system? Say more, please. We can see how the interests of the right, as well as uh, the U.S. imperial interests, have coincided to try to weaken the left uh, in all kinds of ways, including through these austerity programs, IMF loans, World Bank loans, uh, as well as, quote, democracy programs that the U.S. funds, or we, the taxpayer fund, uh, that are given to more conservative groups to try to build up Uh, their ability to win in these elections. Uh, And then there are institutions, and one of them is the Organization of American States that has traditionally uh, been in line with U.S. policy and trying to keep Latin America uh, in line with U.S. policy. We saw the terrible uh, uh, job that they did in Bolivia declaring the elections fraudulent when they weren't. Uh, leading to a coup there. We've seen them do similar kind of thing in Haiti. Um, they are uh, typically uh, anti, very virulently anti-communist, and the head of it, Luis Almagro, uh, is particularly bad. So there's the, those kinds of institutions. And then there's the elites that have their business organizations uh-huh. uh, and businesses that have interests throughout the region, Uh, And they are powerful. They're able to buy politicians and they're able to corrupt politicians. And that's why we've seen this construction company in Brazil uh, that has corrupted politicians all over the hemisphere. Mm. Uh, And they also use something called warfare, which is uh, to go after people on the left through using the courts uh, to accuse them of all kinds of things. I mean, Lula was accused of having a an apartment that didn't belong to him and was disqualified from running in the elections. Uh, We saw how people were attacked in Bolivia uh, and uh, on trumped up charges of corruption, whereas the real corruption is coming from the right who has access to uh, the millions and millions, Mm. if not billions of dollars. And corruption is something that uh, Castillo talked about quite a bit, and it seems like most people in Peru know that there's a lot of corruption and trying to do something about it. And so, you know, it's interesting for the other side to uh, to pick up those words and, and use them. And uh, unfortunately, it oftentimes works. Um, and you write that one of Castillo's key campaign campaign platforms is to convoke a constitutional referendum to decide whether, let the people decide whether they want a new constitution or wish to keep the current one. Tell us, when was the current Constitution written? I mean, it's a big deal here in the United States to amend the Constitution. I think it's, I'm guessing it's kind of different there. What, what, what do people, 
find objectionable about the current Constitution? Why is it so important? And, and how could it happen, actually be made to happen? Well, it's a Constitution that was written during the regime of Alberto Fujimori in 1993, yeah. and it entrenched the idea that the state should play a minimal role and that the market should be supreme. So it, uh, unlike the U.S. where the Constitution is just broad strokes, right. um, in La much of Latin America, the Constitution are detailed documents. And in this document, it detailed that the uh, state would not, the rights that the state would not have uh, and took away the ability of the state to uh, regulate the market. It made education and health care was a service, not a right. Uh, it made the state uh, uh, just play a subservient role. And so that is something that Pedro Castillo would like to reverse. Now, the problem where it is how to do that. Yeah. And according to uh, the rules of the game, it has to be the Congress itself that will okay a national referendum. Now, polls show that the majority of people do want to rewrite the Constitution. Oh. And yet, to get this right-wing assembly to agree to it uh. is going to be hard to overcome. And that's why Pedro Castillo has said, we're going to need to call people out into the streets. And I do want to be clear that when he talks about calling people out into the streets, uh, he talks about absolutely nonviolent sure. resistance. And that has been uh, what he has been part of his whole life. But he does know that the, the only way that he's going to be able to pressure uh, those conservatives in Congress is to show that there is a massive determination yes. from large numbers of the people. And people do have the power. I think people in most of Latin America probably realize it more than uh, North Americans do. We've been convinced that we don't have the power and that getting out in the streets doesn't matter. It does matter. And people. Well, that's right. And, and Peruvians have been coming out in the streets in large numbers, as we have seen these huge demonstrations in other parts of Latin America. And you're right, Bert. Uh, I think Americans don't have any idea about mm -hmm. how actively people in Latin America are in trying to uh, get their governments to respond to their their will. Uh, how in some countries, like in Brazil, uh, the unions are very strong. There are nationwide organizations of uh, teachers, of youth groups, of women's organizations. Uh, and these are strong community threads that... Uh, tie people together, and that can be a counterbalance to the Absolutely. wealthy elites. We are not powerless. Speaking of which, what can people do? I mean, this this show is listened to mostly in America, but also in other countries as well. But what can American citizens do now if they, you know, care about uh, democracy and and uh, decency in Peru? And uh, you know, what can people do? Well, first to say that this is an epic struggle in Peru that will determine the future of this country and the region for a long time to come. So uh, keep abreast of what's happening in Peru. And uh, if Pedro Castillo is indeed uh, allowed to take his rightful place, uh, we have been contacting our Congress people to say, speak out and say that the will of the people must be recognized. Show your concern for what looks like now like an attempted coup, mm -hmm. um, follow the program of, of Pedro Castillo, which is easy to find on 
the internet, and then the groups in the United States that are working on these issues, like my organization, Code Pink, mm -hmm. which is codepink.org. Oh. And we have regular uh, petitions that we put out, alerts that we put out, calls that we make for people, and calls to come and demonstrate as well. Uh, so it's important to be connected to organizations like ours. Uh, we have big um, a demonstration coming up this week around uh, uh, supporting the um, uh, resistance in Colombia, uh -huh. uh, the resistance in Brazil. There's going to be a summit of the Americas happening in the United States. It's something uh -huh. that happens every three years when he with heads of states from around the continent. And uh, it will be in the U.S. It was postponed because of COVID. Mm. Uh, we're going to be calling lots of people to come join us in D.C. to use that as a focal point to demonstrate our support for these grassroots movements and progressive policies throughout Latin America. So I would say just be in touch with us and organ other organizations that are working on these issues. Yeah, and, and codepink.org, good organization, very effective, some great, great people involved. And I'm hopeful that uh, uh, President Biden, you know, he sent Kamala Harris to Guatemala, and I think they're at least talking about what can we do to enable people to stay home uh, in in uh, Latin America rather than just building that racist wall that, uh, that Trump was all about. And, you know, there are things that the Biden administration could do that that uh, would turn things around. I, I mean, we could put pressure on them as well. Uh, and writing to members of Congress does matter. Yeah, well, one of the things is to stop interfering, a hands-off approach, to yeah. stop using the U.S. Agency for International Development, AID, as a vehicle to support the right wing. In fact, Pedro Castillo says he doesn't want USAID money in Peru if he oh, wins. Good. Uh, so we, the people, need to be in solidarity with people's movements, but we have to stop our government from interfering. And the U.S. ambassador that is still in Peru is from the Trump days. Oh, she was an assistant to Pompeo. She came out of the CIA. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> she is not somebody we want representing us in Peru. So there has to be a real transformation uh, in personnel as well as policies. And yes, it's good what Trump, what Biden is saying that he wants to do. But I think number one that we're hearing from people in the region is stop this, quote, a security assistance of giving uh -huh. money to uh -huh. the police and the military that are the repressive forces that force so many people to flee their countries. Indeed. That sounds absolutely necessary. Thank you so much for being with us today, Medea Benjamin and CodePink.org. I'm going to play a little bit of Pedro Castillo's theme song, his campaign song. Thank you so much for being with us. Terrific. Nice to be on with you, Bird. Thank you. Thank you. Porque el Perú lo necesita. Porque el Perú lo necesita. 
love.